shining a light on autism and life on the spectrum. Welcome to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly, a podcast breaking down barriers, stigma and misconceptions around autism. And now, here's your neurologically different host, Orion Kelly. Welcome and thank you so much for listening to My Friend Autism. I'm Orion Kelly and I'm autistic. But what's critical to understand is that I'm just one person on the autism spectrum. So if you've met one person on the spectrum, well, you've met one person on the spectrum. No two autistic people are the same. We have individual strengths and challenges. And my purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and engaging conversations on autism. This podcast seeks to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while increasing the level of understanding and acceptance of autistic people. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Join the conversation now at the Orion Kelly Facebook page. My guest on this episode is author, researcher and psychologist Liz Smalley. Her new book, When Autism is Tearing You Apart, A Mother's Recovery Guide to Finding Courage, Confidence, Calm and Compassion is out now and available through Amazon. Liz, thank you so much for joining me. It's good to be here and talking with you. Now, I'm looking forward to our chat and let's start at the start. Do you want to share with us your personal connection to autism and also a bit about you, you know, what you do and a bit about your story? Yeah, sure. So um, my personal connection to autism is that uh, I have a 31-year-old son who has autism and an intellectual disability. So we've been in the autism tribe for quite a while and we've seen quite a lot of changes with that. Um, I did homeschool um, our kids for about Uh, I think it was 12 years, so I haven't worked for a long time. And then after the kids sort of grew up, um, I wanted to go back to study, so um, I became a psychologist, and as part of that, we do quite a lot of research. Um, And because my um, interest was autism, uh, that's what I sort of followed through with. So now I'm working as a psychologist in private practice. Back when your son was diagnosed, how different was the way we recognise, understand and assist autistic people? Because I know it must have been different given where I was 30 years ago. No one picked it up where now I'm autistic. So clearly the world has changed in in the realm of autism. I think you're right there. And I think um, there's been a few factors that have led to the change. I mean, if we think back to um, when the word autistic first came about, it was sort of back in the 1940s and then through the kind of 50s and 60s, Um, There was mother blaming, so it was like, well, your mum's a refrigerator mum. That's why why you've got problems. So it was all your mum's fault. And then gradually it's kind of progressed and autism got into the the diagnostic manual, you know, around about, I think it was the 80s, and it's had a few changes since then. So 
Um, when uh, my son was small, um, he actually didn't get officially diagnosed until he was 17. And it wasn't because I hadn't been asking. Um, so the first time we saw um, a psychologist, um, I was uh, they were stuck on I was still a terrible mother. So that was my first experience. My goodness. Um, and then the next psychologist we saw was, well, he didn't walk on his toes, um, but he had still lined up all his toys and curled up under her desk for the assessment, but he didn't walk on his toes, so he wasn't autistic. My goodness. And then, you know, he was still having behavioural um, challenges and we, we just we just didn't know what to do so then he was put we went to see pediatrician so he'd had the whole alphabet soup thing he'd had ADHD um, attention deficit disorder then he'd had OCD obsessive compulsive then he had ODD oppositional defiant disorder so you can see the alphabet soup sort of building up mm. and then um Finally, when he was 17, I think two things changed. Um, the world moved on in diagnosing autism, but I think also I'm, you know, I was, you know, 17 years older by the time he was diagnosed, and I I wasn't as compliant. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I think that was one of the things that changed too. So the process was quite different, and actually, only in the last two years has their diagnosis for autism been standardised across Australia. Before that, it was very um, individualised and there wasn't like a system for saying, look, if you do this, this and this, then you'll know for sure. You know, one person, diagnostic person might do it that way, someone else would do it that way, but only since 2018 has it become standardised, which is actually... Uh, great, I think. It's really interesting hearing you speak about that. And from my point of view, I just feel so sorry for you as a, as a young mum back in those times, just all the blame, the, the amount of, of baggage that young women must have taken on. It's just, it's horrifying. But it's what's really interesting is from my point of view, being only diagnosed in the last couple of years, do you know the, the first psychiatrist that I sat down with I had a similar experience, said that, well, I've made eye contact on and off, not all the time, but on and off, so I can't be autistic. Oh, and by the way, you've gone to university recently. If you're able to study at university, you can't be autistic. And that, that, that was my experience in the last couple of years. So we've come a long way. And of course, I went and saw another um, psychiatrist who was a professor and a specialist in the, in the field you know, of autism. And, and it was a different experience, clearly. But it shows that even 30 years on, it, it really is, and I know this is just an organic thought and question, but it, it, it really seems to me like it still is up to the individual healthcare professionals to take the initiative to actually uh, learn and understand more about autism and, and where it's at rather than just what they learned maybe 20, 30 years ago when they, when, when, you know, when they studied their profession. Do, do you see what I mean? I think it's really um, interesting that you've observed that because I think um, we're sort of in, uh, like I was in the wave of where kids were getting uh, better recognised and supported and I think you're kind of in the wave of, oh, okay, so that means there's lots of adults out there that have have these characteristics but haven't been organised 
diagnosed and are not getting the support they need. Um, and I think this is the next wave of adults now um, recognising uh, that it might it might be um, a characteristic that they have themselves, that they have some of these things that they've lived with all their life. And um, somebody like yourself who has adapted to the world, I think it's only just being recognised how hard adults are working to like fit in and not realising everybody else doesn't have to work that hard. Mm. Like the amount of energy it takes to get through a day as an adult, I think, you know, from what I've heard from uh, my clients is that it's really, really tough and they wonder why it's so hard and they never really understood. So yeah, no, I think it's actually great now that adults are being recognised as well. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm extremely grateful for that. And everything you've said is absolutely correct. And, and, and also too, you know, because we can get so good at masking over a long period of time when you're not diagnosed until adulthood, People just take things for granted. It's not like I haven't had many failed relationships because of who I was and I just didn't know. And it's not like I haven't had many job losses because, again, of who I was but I didn't know. So I just assumed I was a bad person. I wasn't meant to fit in. I was just an outcast. I was just worthless. That's that's where you feel. That's where your mental health ends up. And then a diagnosis can kind of turn all that around and Clearly, like I've done with a YouTube video of mine with my YouTube channel, I've got a whole video just on saying I'm an autistic alien because I legitimately feel like I'm living on the wrong planet for who I am. So I think mm-hmm. and I think there's so much um, to learn, as you say, with all these waves. And, and that kind of brings me to a question about research. So clearly your own personal history with your son, putting that aside, you obviously talk about your work with, with clients, but... What's been behind your passion to study and research the field of autism? I guess your experiences early in motherhood are also have also played a part. Mm, definitely. I guess the the one word answer is actually surprised me. It's actually rage that motivates me to persist and pursue this area based on my experiences. Um, as a young person and having seen several psychologists, it was just a horrendous experience. It was humiliating. It was shaming. And I remember, you know, all those years ago thinking, you know, like I was in my 20s, but I thought when I grow up, I'm going to do better than that because you don't have to humiliate and shame people. So that was the first motivation. And then the next motivation was that there's a lot of research being done for the person with autism, but because of my lived experience, I didn't see much being um, investigated about what's the experience of parents in that setting when you have a child with the various challenges that kids with autism sometimes have, like they escape, they might run on the road, they self-harm, they terrorise their siblings and you can't do anything about it. Like you're constantly, as a parent, on alert. Mm. And the emerging research, it's really quite new and most of it's being done in Australia. So a lot of it's coming out of Melbourne where they're actually just now identifying that parents meet the criteria for... um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but the challenge with parents of kids with autism is that if you go to war, 
the war will end and you can come home and recover. Hopefully that's, you know, the ideal. When you have a child, you're parenting a child, the, you know, inverted commas, the war never ends. It's every day. And you don't get to go for a break. Like it's your life every day. You get up to disaster every day. You might wake up and think, ah, I'm still alive. I wish I was dead or I was sick enough to go to hospital. So this wouldn't be my problem just for one day. Mm. Don't get that break. So it's constantly living in a war zone. And that really resonated with me. Um, I actually saw it on a meme on Facebook a couple of years ago and thought that's really interesting um, that parents of kids with autism had had their salivary hormones tested and they were the same as um, returned veterans who had PTSD. And I thought that's really interesting, but I couldn't find anything about it. So I thought I'm going to store that idea away and when I get the opportunity I'm going to pursue that so that's kind of where um, my inspiration came from and just trying to make life better for parents because so often um, you sort of hear oh you're you know you're the parent of a special needs child you're so lucky Um, you're really special and It's like, look, it's not special. It's really hard. And um, don't patronise me like that. Yeah. And you know what? I I just absolutely uh, adore your reasons. They're fantastic, especially rage, because that's what I feel. I I think that's just the best answer uh, ever. And and I think (laughs) everything you've described, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying everything you've described is my experience and my wife's experience. You know, I mean, sure, I'm autistic, but we have an autistic six-year-old and I can tell you it's it is exactly as you say the the PTSD thing I find just absolutely fascinating certainly my wife who's neurotypical and has a really busy career like yourself she's a, a an extremely talented professional person and I find myself at home with our a 1 year old which gives me a lot more flexibility I, I f- sometimes I'm 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 sad or scared for her because you know she, I feel like all she feels like she has to do is be the perfect person all the time and you know and always be there for everyone else and I don't think that's fair and as you say we I have anxiety as a comorbidity but so the amygdala is already like a caveman but in saying that we are constantly on alert. We've got a one-year-old who presumably at this point, he's just a one-year-old, but let's not label him. And we've got a six-year-old who's diagnosed autistic. Can you imagine what our six-year-old would do to our one-year-old if we just left them alone? <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it can be really scary going moment by moment, day by day. So I find that link just fascinating. And sometimes I feel guilty. You know how sometimes there's autistic parents that will like bash you on social media if you dare complain or dare vent because they're saying it's, you know, I don't know what they say. They say they just judge you and make you feel bad. So then you don't really mm. tell anyone and then no one, you don't ever get to vent or get a break. It resonates with me that, you know, everything you're saying. And I think that's probably why your book is such a uh, such an amazing piece of content for people going through this experience because, this is exactly what people are going through on a day-to-day basis. Now, your book, When Autism is Tearing You Apart, A Mother's Recovery Guide to Finding Courage, Confidence, Calm and Compassion. It's out now. It's available through Amazon. We're going to talk through this amazing book, but first, just tell us a bit about how it came about. So um, just before we jump onto that, just a point that you made about not being allowed to sort of say 
hey, this is really hard, I don't know what to do, and, like, it's awful, um, and being, you know, that not being acceptable, one of the barriers to getting this kind of research published is that um, academic journals generally don't want to hear about anything negative about parenting with autism or anything negative about autism. So it makes the um, work actually quite difficult to publish because it won't be accepted on that that basis. So wow. I hear what you're saying on yeah. on that, and that makes it that much harder to get the message out. Mm. So I guess that sort of ties into why I wrote the book. Um, well, initially... Um, I was um, hoping to do a PhD um, and further the research to like, how can I get the message out to parents? But I had a bit of a lucky escape with that because I was 1% short, so I wasn't able to do a PhD. But I thought, this is a really important message that I really care about and I'm really passionate about it. And I thought, how can I get this message out? So that's really what led me to write the book because the people that I want to reach actually aren't necessarily the academics that are going to read an academic journal. The people I want to reach are the mums and parents um, with children to say, hey, I get that it's really hard and to really normalise their experience of what it's like to have a child with autism, how challenging it is, and actually to address what it feels like as a mum when, say, your family say, we're having a party, we're letting you know so you don't come. Mm. Um, Or you don't get invited to other kids' birthday parties or, you know, you can't go pop to the shops because you like how bad do I need milk? Probably not bad enough to go to the shops and have a meltdown. I really don't need it that bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just those those everyday experiences that, like you say, other people just take for granted. They just strap the kids in, jump in the car, go to the shop. There's a, you know, it's going crazy at the shops, you know, because it's busy. It might be peak time. We're just like, oh, that's never going to happen. Just those everyday things to normalize them and just speak about, you know, there's moments when and you don't like being a parent because it's really hard and culturally we can't say that. No, exactly. And you're you know, you're absolutely right. The it's just such a great insight the book into the experiences that we just we just go through on a daily basis. Now, caring for an autistic child can be traumatizing. It's something that you speak about in the book. Could you talk us through this because there's obviously some of the links you've talked about earlier in research, but I think this is I feel like this is almost you know, one of those taboo topics. How dare we say it's tra- it's traumatising to raise a child? Mm, that's right. You know, kids are supposed to be a blessing. And um, if you, you know, if you watch the ads on TV, if you're watching the nappy ads or the baby formula ads, everybody's smiling, your baby's smiling. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and like, well, you know, my my reality was, you know, my my baby with autism just screamed all the time. I, I couldn't pick him up and hold him. He would do this banana thing where he'd try and flip out of my arms, and yes. like, it's quite scary because you land on the floor. Yeah. Um, and trying to hold your baby, and that your baby never kind of loves you back. So it mm. makes it really hard to develop that those loving feelings because 
um, often the you know babies with autism they're not going to look into your eyes and goo and gar and then smile at you and you're going to have that you know heart melting moment of oh my gosh I love this baby um, you get those moments your baby screams all the time they probably vomit quite a bit because often they have gut issues. They don't sleep, so you feel like a zombie and you just wake up in the morning if you ever actually got any sleep and think, how am I going to do today? I just feel like I I can't cope. So you don't get those bonding moments. Like I know all babies cry and, you know, there's difficult days or difficult weeks or whatever, but in between that, there's those, those you know, bonding moments where yes. just like on the TV, quite often we don't get that and it's very hard to make that connection with with your baby. Everything you've just said, that is because we've got a one-year-old and a six-year-old, that is literally our, our life every day. Everything you just explained then, that is, I mean, my wife legitimately doesn't know how she works every day uh, and we, mm. are, we are zombies. So there's nothing you said then that I can't relate to wholly and completely. And God, I sometimes I feel like we're just not allowed to say that uh, out loud, and the toll it takes on us, and certainly, you know, my wife. Um, I think the words "not sustainable," "unmanageable," "close to imploding" these are the kind of things that are real. I'm not like overdoing how I'm explaining it. It really is, it really is troublesome to the, the mental health of parents, and and when you add on to that something that we experience, which is. You know, the outside pressures from, from other parents, neurotypical parents, whoever, the community, families, friends, you know, like, well, if I, if I discipline that kid, I'd, you know, everyone's, everyone's got their, their two cents and you're, tr- you're trying to do what's best for your autistic child. You're trying to, I guess, live up to the expectations of the, of the people around you, what society wants. And it can be really tough. And what advice do you have for parents of autistic kids that, that feel this kind of of pressure and, in a way, kind of societal intimidation. Oh, you've really hit a hot button there. I can tell you that now. I feel my heart racing just (laughs) thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, um, just a little bit of a further insight. Um, My husband used to be a um, church minister. Um, He's a naturopath now, but he used to be a church minister. And I don't know if you're aware, but um, the preacher's kids are supposed to be perfect, right? Because they're supposed to be an example of the perfect parent to everyone else. (laughs) And then we have a kid with like behavioural problems who's not diagnosed other than having bad, bad parents. And... You know, very punitive parenting 30 years ago is like, um, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child and, oh, you're not disciplining him right. Um, And, you know, like going to church, like what a nightmare. It's noisy. There's lots of people. um, And and we did that for like 15 years. Um, And then out in the community, you know, you go to play group and it's like you know, he would hit someone. So, mm. you know, in the end, I just sort of ended up really not going anywhere and just keeping it calm and trying to manage it at home. But even that was difficult because um, he would terrorise his sisters, particularly the younger one, um, you know, and had pulled her hair out and would, like, we couldn't leave the room. I couldn't go to the toilet during the day. I'd have to tell her, look, you'll have to go out the front and climb up the tree because I really can't hold on anymore. 
um, and Dad's not home yet, so could you just please climb up the tree? Thankfully, she was a good climber, just so I could go to the toilet. Like, yep. you know, it kind of sounds funny, but actually it's really awful. It's so, not funny. It's I have the same thing, but I just thought the little guy, the one-year-old, coming to the toilet with me. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to have a pee holding a baby. Like, what do you do? <laughs> it happens. I'm t- it's not funny. It's the reality to me. <laughs> It absolutely is the reality. And so I sort of, in the early days, I was like, you know, I had these idealistic ideas that I was going to be, you know, the kind of mother I wanted to be. But in the end, it's just like I had to let go of that idea and just be the mother I needed to be for for my kids. And I I don't know if it comes with age because, you know, I'm 55 now, but just thinking, I really don't care what other people think anymore. They don't understand. Um, and I don't have to justify my parenting to them. Um, and, you know, there's that saying, what other people think of you is none of your business. And yeah. I've really stuck with that to think, you can think what you like, but you're not living my life. Um, and if you want to be judgmental, judge away. But uh, this is a this is a little bit malicious, maybe, mm. but I sort of think, hey, if your life is so sweet that you can't have compassion for somebody who's struggling, I just think your day is coming. Hardship will come to you at some point. If it hasn't come yet, it's on its way. And I think sometimes, I don't know, if, when you see people that have five five kids and they're all compliant and you know they all go out, they have their hair brushed, their clothes are straight, you know. They haven't, you know, vomited or squashed food on their, you know, clothes. And you think, God, how did they do that? And and they're like, they're calm, they're smiley. And then like my kids, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, hey, we've we've all got clothes on. This is amazing. They might not be ironed, but it's like, hey, they're clean. I made it. <laughs> so it's kind of lowering your expectations yes, yeah. a bit, I think, and just recognising. I think there's something sort of maybe that I touched on a little bit in the book is you know, you have these moments where you have to choose, am I going to educate this person who's criticising me or am I just going to just walk away and carry on with my life? And there comes a point where you get tired of like having to educate, educate. It's like, no, just be kind and leave me alone. Yeah, great great advice. I think everything that you've said makes complete sense to, certainly to myself and my wife and, and parents of young kids. I, I totally feel exactly where you're coming from. By the way, I wasn't aware that uh, hairbrushes and kids was a thing. I didn't I didn't realise that uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't realise that kids left the house for school in clean clothes. I, that's a thing, is it? I'm, I was unaware. I apologise. Uh, that, that's obviously my I bad. I well believe it. Oh my gosh, it's like that sometimes, isn't it? Well, and, you know, not sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, my husband would come home and the place would look like a bomb hit it. And it's like, look, I've been on patrol all day. I seriously <laughs> have not been able to, like, do that stuff. But I have dinner organised. So to me, that's a win. Yeah, you know, exactly. if we have food and the house is a mess, it's like, hey, we have food. That's the priority. You've got to sort of prioritise because in this situation, you actually, like, can't do what other people are are doing. I can remember going to like different friends' houses on those rare occasions, and I remember one day one of them opened up their pantry, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, their pantry's neat! People put stuff in containers and organise them." And I was like, blown away. 
And my first thought was, wow, you don't have a life. <laughs> Imagine, <laughs> but, yeah. Now, there's stuff in the, there's stuff thought, in the wow. pantry. I mean, uh, I can't believe there's even stuff in the pantry after our, <laughs> our six-year-old gets home from school, didn't eat a thing in his lunchbox, but then eats the entire pantry before dinner. I mean, it's as a... Exactly, uh, I can I can believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and you know these are all the these are all the things that people don't understand or experience, and you know we laugh at them because we've we've been through them. It, they're war stories in a way. It's kind of like I've got to surprise my six year old with shampoo. I think I've shampooed his hair twice in his lifetime. What can I do? It, I'm, his hair's going to be his hair. So he, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, there's nothing I can do. What do you want me to do, guys? Get in there, hold him down. I'm not going to traumatize my son because you want me to shampoo his hair. It just it's one of those things that I guess no one else can really relate to. And I think another thing that I'm sure you can relate to from your stories and I can relate to is this idea of just constant chaos in, in, in our household. Chaos all the time, high levels of stress and physical and mental stress. And sometimes I feel like my wife and I are almost never having nice moments anymore. We're always kind of mm. like in the trenches and our language is like in the trenches. And it's not because we're in a bad place it's because just the you know our our roles are so defined like i guess like at war roles that we don't actually have husband wife moments anymore and it can be obviously very overwhelming that chaos i'm sure that's something that you can relate to in the book you give advice on different types of ways of i guess handling the mental load and and high stress situations because meltdowns with or autistic people are obviously meltdowns and shutdowns can be very overwhelming for everyone involved. Nothing like the person going through them. But when that happens, you've got you know you've got a one year old, you've got a wife, you've got a husband, you've got a child. You've got there's so it really feels like I don't know where we're ever gonna get out of this. Uh, you know, <laughs> and how how do you see that improving? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, that question, and I think it's interesting that. Um, one of the comments that you made was, you know, that the person with the autism can be having the meltdown um, and it affects everyone around them, but it's much worse for the person with autism. I'm not sure I agree with that. It's just different. And I think that might have, you know, might be more what you're thinking yes, with yes, that. Yes. Is it's just different. But I, I think from my own experience and I think being older and being able to say these sort of things now is that um, I didn't know how to not have a meltdown myself. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges, not having the the understanding or the skills like meltdown and shutdown wasn't even a thing back then. Um, and if you keep in mind, 30 years ago, we didn't actually have the internet. I know it might be hard for some people to imagine that, but... Um, you just couldn't get information. You couldn't just get on and Google, oh, what what do you do when you're having a meltdown or a shutdown? Like I couldn't even identify that that's what was happening. I would just feel like a bad person, um, you know, going off and being angry at my family um, and just feeling awful about it, but then doing it again and not understanding why. So I think probably... One of the most significant things that I've learned is um, to recognise that I get triggered when he has a meltdown. And this is a classic trauma response. It'll it'll trigger me to have a, have a meltdown. And it's a bit like, um, you know, that story of the kid with his finger in the dike in Holland holding back all the water. But as soon as he pulled his finger out, 
you know, I don't know the physics of it, but the whole thing flooded. And it's a bit the same with having a meltdown. You get a bit of a trigger. So for me, it would be my son having a meltdown. And then I would have a meltdown as well, which is really unhelpful because then you have two people having a meltdown. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I think, you know, as you, as you talk about the, the feelings that you, you get, you mentioned yourself being, you know, you, feel, you, you just feel bad about it. That, you know, that's something I can, I can definitely relate to, you know, day by day, I'm a, I feel like a bad dad or a failure in a situation or bad at parenting and you have guilt and self-loathing and, you know, feelings of, of failure and it's it's not good for for the mental health of the parents because in many ways you just feel like a beaten boxer every day in a way and I'm just wondering if that's something that you know you've experienced and also you know how you how you help people kind of turn those feelings around I guess it's a bit about the you know in your book when you talk about compassion for yourself yeah yeah and I think this is one of the most important messages that you know, I want to share with people is that it is actually really hard. And the messages that we get from society about what parenting should be like, what it should look like, and what it should feel like are not the experiences that we have as parents of kids with autism. We don't have that same experience. So I guess one of the things that I think that has helped me and that I suggest is, you know, we've got to make different kinds of choices. So, you know, like one of the choices you're making is, hey, you know what? I don't care if I never shampoo my kid's hair again. That's not the worst thing that could happen. So we're making different kinds of choices where other people, they just wash their kid's hair and don't think anything of it. So I think we make different choices and they're not really... We don't see other people making those choices unless they're people in our tribe of other, you know, parents of kids with autism that can validate, hey, that's totally a valid choice. If you don't want to shampoo your kid's hair, that's fine. You know, there's worse things. And we know there's worse things because we're living worse things <laughs> every day. My son was out on the trampoline with a bread knife. Like, how scary is that? Oh, man. You know, and it's like, hey, he's not on the trampoline with a bread knife. Awesome. Do I care if his hair's washed? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he's got clean hair. Exactly, yes. It's not really... <laughs> you know, there's worse things. <laughs> yeah, there certainly is. <laughs> trampolines, uh, uh, trampolines and autistic kids, aren't they great? Oh, look, we went through so many trampolines because they just wore out and they'd be yep. out there like for hours and hours. Yep. So I love them. Yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> so I think part of the thing is just recognising that we make different choices and that's okay. Our priorities are different and that's okay. And I think the part of the puzzle that's missing for parents of kids with autism is validating that, yep, that's okay. That's a good choice. Yeah, that makes sense. Because in, in the end, it's hard for anyone else to be able to relate to what you go through on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis. But I guess in a way where we're forcing ourselves to maybe I'm just looking at myself and comparing myself to that stereotypical parent and then going, well, total failure. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 yeah. not, it's not worth it. Yeah, and I think you raise an interesting concept there because it's the question of measuring ourselves as parents. Who are we using for the yardstick? Yeah. It's not fair to um, use a parent with neurotypical kids who are actually also compliant 
um, to to measure against what our experience is. We're using the wrong measuring stick. We're evaluating our worth and our success and our competence against neurotypical things, and that is not our life. It, mm. That's not the things that we can measure. And I think it's really, I mean, based in our culture, it's like lowering our standards, I guess, if we were comparing ourselves to the neurotypicals. It'd be like, uh, hey, we've got, we got food. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think exactly. it's really simple and, yeah. you know, I think the other thing that we do probably that maybe neurotypicals don't, like um, one of the things we're celebrating in our house is that our son didn't swear at his support worker on Friday for two weeks in a row. That's a real achievement. We're excited. Absolutely. But that's not what other parents of 30-year-olds are excited about. But, you know, we change what we're excited about. I'm excited that... You know, he didn't swear at his support worker. I'm excited that he didn't have a meltdown when he was told that support worker couldn't come because they were sick and we got a different one. I mean, the, the things that we measure our kids' achievements with and the things that we celebrate are different to what neurotypicals celebrate, but they're still worthy of celebration. Yes. Even if that's not what everyone else is celebrating, that's what we're celebrating and we're excited about it. Absolutely. Well, 100%. And comparing is just futile. Now, your book, When Autism is Tearing You Apart, it's, it's a phenomenal book. And I tell you what, there's been some unbelievable reviews, a heap of five-star reviews, compassionate, authentic, beautifully written, a wonderful resource, a warm hug, must read. They're all descriptions of your book. What was the hope for your book? And, and how do you feel by receiving all this feedback so far? Um, I've been really um, thankful and grateful for the, the kind feedback that I've had and to get accolades obviously wasn't the purpose of the book um, but the purpose of the book is to reach out to those families that need to hear this and to be validated and for me to read that it feels like a warm hug, that it's giving comfort to parents, validating their experiences and also educating, you know, people around them that, hey, it is hard, it's okay if you're struggling, it will get better and in the meantime, here's some things you can do to sort of, the word we would use is downregulate um, in psychology land, so that just means, you know, Here's how to calm yourself so you can get through the day because I get that it's hard. And I think it's one of those resources that people listening to this will definitely want to go and, and check out. And I, I really recommend that you do. It's uh, Liz Smallier, What Autism Is Tearing Your Part, A Mother's Recovery Guide to Finding Courage, Confidence, Calm and Compassion. You can check it out through Amazon. It's an absolutely fantastic book and you don't really need me to tell you, just look at the reviews yourself. Now, as a parent of an autistic child, now obviously in their 30s, what do you reckon, because we've learned a lot about your experiences as a young mum, what do you reckon you'd tell yourself 30 years ago that you now know about parenting an autistic kid? Because I reckon it's going to be pretty helpful. I think the, the best way I can describe it is I started off as a little mouse Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, three bags full, sir. You're the expert. If you say that's how it is, that's how it is. I would say just throw that out the window and just become a lion. Start off as a lion. Don't start as a mouse. This is your kid. 
you're the expert and just don't take no for an answer. If you're worried and nobody's listening, keep talking. You know, talk talk longer, talk louder, um, harass. And it really is true that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. If you're not getting what you need, you just keep ringing up and persist until you do get what you need because there's a lot of bullying and... Um, um, the experts um, take their authority very seriously, and this still happens now, I'm sorry to say, mm. you know, where there's parent blaming and, like, if you did this better, um, you wouldn't have this problem. That is absolutely not true. And if you get that message, go and see someone else. You don't have to put up with that. You are the expert on your kid, and you need to be their team leader, and you need to advocate for them. You don't need to make friends or please professionals. You need to work with them, but you don't have to please them. You need to advocate for your child. So I guess my, you know, in a nutshell would be start as a lion and, and carry on as a lion. Um, you will succeed and don't give up when, you know, with being persistent and don't worry about being annoying. Just get what your kid needs and sometimes you have to advocate. You're not in the business of making friends. You're in the business of advocating for your child and to do that, you have to become a lion. So don't be afraid, you know, to roar when you need to because sometimes you do need to roar because people aren't listening. Don't be ashamed of doing that and don't be afraid to do that. So that would be my top tip just become a lion and stay that way. And it's a great advice and it sounds just like what my wife does to my 6-year-old school on almost a daily on a daily basis. It's a exactly. great it's great advice. And I think you're right with regards to healthcare professionals speaking down or patronizing you sometimes. It, it just doesn't make anyone feel good about themselves and it doesn't actually help the process and I think that's really important to understand that you've got to find you've got to find the right fit for all these types of people and if they're not they're not helpful and useful, well, then it's okay. It's, it's okay to go somewhere else and, and, and seek people that, you know, that are more up with the modern day times and not talking to you like you're in a doctor's office in the 60s or something. So I think that's all, that's all really great advice. It's advocacy. Exactly, yeah. And I think the other aspect of that too is that, you know, you're not going to be a match with everyone. So you might meet one speech therapist and think, oh, they're amazing, but then you might meet your OT and go, oh, I just don't feel like we're a match. So I guess the other aspect would be just trust your gut. When yep. your gut's saying, oh, this doesn't quite feel like a match, that's okay. Um, trust yourself, have confidence in that feeling and think, yeah, actually, this doesn't feel right. I'm going to keep looking because we're not going to be friends with everyone. We're not going to like everyone and everyone's not going to like us and that's absolutely okay, just go until you find find your match. There's no shame in it. Um, and, and don't give up and trust trust that gut feeling. It's, it's great advice. It's something I can relate to completely and I think it's something that will really help parents. And when autism is tearing you apart, available through Amazon. Liz, it's been an amazing chat. I've really, really enjoyed it. Just fascinating and just really delightful. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you too. My guest was author, researcher and psychologist Liz Smalley and her book, When Autism is Tearing You Apart, A Mother's Recovery Guide to Finding Courage, Confidence, Calm and Compassion 
is out now and available through Amazon. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Online at orionkelly.com.au. Thank you so much for listening to My Friend Autism. I really do appreciate it. If the episode has resonated with you, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, suggest a topic or area of autism to explore, or just say hi, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook, you can send me a message via my website if you'd like. It's orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. This podcast is here to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while increasing the level of understanding and acceptance of autistic people. All I'm asking for is you to open your hearts and minds to people a little bit different to you and embrace the benefits of neurodiversity. Until next time, thanks for opening your hearts and minds and embracing differences. You've been listening to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. To join the conversation, get in touch with Orion and never miss an episode. Like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or visit orionkelly.com.au.